Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. On today's show, Reader Mail. We'll take a look at some of your questions and comments from the year, in particular about how your relationship to technology and social media has changed in a year that's been tumultuous, to say the least, for tech companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. And then we'll talk about cybersecurity, hacks, and the sometimes bizarre legal battles that ensue after a big data theft. We'll be joined by Josephine Wolf, a professor of public policy at Rochester Institute of Technology and the author of the new book, You'll See This Message When It Is Too Late, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches. We'll talk to her about some of the most significant breaches in the last decade, how those companies holding that information have been held accountable, and what it means for the everyday user who just wants to shop at Target. That's all coming up on today's If Then. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right, we've been threatening to have a listener mailbag episode for months. We're finally doing it. We asked you to send us your responses to two questions in particular. First, has all the news about social media this year changed your habits at all? And then second, was there a technology that you discovered you couldn't live without this year, or maybe one that you realized you totally could live without? So without further ado, let's hear what the listeners of If Then had to say. Our producer, Max Jacobs, has been kind enough to read some of your messages. Okay, this is from Thomas. I stopped using Facebook after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I had hundreds of friends and kept in touch with friends and family I care about. I always kept the security settings locked down, sharing with my friends only, but I knew that basically anything posted was then out of my control and eventually anyone could see it. So when I first learned about Cambridge Analytica, I was not really surprised and didn't plan on leaving Facebook mainly because I never completed any of the online personality questionnaire they used for profiling users. My wife, on the other hand, frequently completed these questionnaires and was the first to delete Facebook. When I then learned that it was routine to propagate the profiling information to users that didn't take these personality questionnaire via friends and likes, I simply felt dirty and knew I had to quit. This has come at a cost. I live in the UK and all of my family is in the US, and Facebook was great for keeping up with them. Fortunately, my family were flexible and were happy to join a private WhatsApp channel that we created. So, of course, I realize WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, but the knowledge that our content is not now used for advertising purposes is good enough for me. I surmise it's just a matter of time before WhatsApp is changed and monetized, and then I will probably find another platform for staying in touch with my family. 
Yeah, that seems like a safe bet that WhatsApp eventually will be changed and monetized, given that it is owned by Facebook. And is not profitable. (laughs) But this is kind of sad. I mean, it kind of gets at, like, you're trying to just use social media in the most minimal way and try not to get screwed by the companies that are harvesting your data. And it's, it's just hard to do. Like, it's hard to find a place to do that in 2018. This is a great point, Thomas, and I agree that this kind of what Will has called in his writing a Faustian bargain, um, where we opt to kind of give uh, give away our data for this you know free service, uh, is not sitting well with people, and uh, and rightfully so. We've learned about all the ways that can be misused, and it is very very hard to uh to to find a place where you don't feel like you're kind of part of a you know economic ecosystem that you you don't you don't really consent to or you don't understand how it works uh and it makes you feel kind of dirty i also feel kind of gross when i use these <laughs> services but uh but also don't really have anywhere else to go uh so yeah, I mean, yeah. Where, yeah where could he go i mean you, you people I mean, use like if there was a paid service if there was a paid service yeah but signal is uh you know a messaging app it's not social media if it's just about messaging then yeah you have options but if it's about the constellation of things that we get from social media this is the way these companies are set up unless uh, Congress steps in <laughs> and forces them to reformulate in some way, uh, or you just opt out and therefore kind of opt out of public social life that, that is organized around these spaces. April, do you know if people still use Wicker? I remember a few years ago talking to the, the CEO of Wicker, Wicker? <laughs> Nico Sell. And and she was, I mean, it was, it's, it was devised as a private communication platform, but she was thinking about this stuff. She was like, how do we make Wicker fun? She was thinking about, like, how do you get kids to like Wicker the way that they like Snapchat? It doesn't seem like it's really happened, but I don't want to speak out of turn because I haven't closely followed the company's development since then. But it is safe to say, I think, that no uh, really private... social media network with a different a different business model has taken off like the ones uh, that are ad supported have. Uh, there's been all types of attempts to do this. Uh, you know, uh, Mastodon is the, you know, more recent one, but there was Identica and right, Yeah, there's there's been media a lot. Goblin. Let's yeah, that there's been this a lot. is like this is the the dream. Yeah, but it's a dream whose time has not yet come. Maybe it will. Maybe 2019 will be the year when people start moving off of Facebook-owned channels in large enough droves that that some other platform can become viable. I wouldn't bet on it, but you never know. You know, yeah, the inertia of this stuff is just so disheartening. And so I'm with you, Thomas. Okay, let's move on to Bear. Bear says, you were asking us, the listeners, if we had quit Facebook, and if yes, why? Well, it was just back before Facebook and Twitter got rid of Alex Jones and Infowars. I was kind of mad about Facebook, or at Facebook rather, for hosting folks like this on their site. The First Amendment rights are fine, but up to a point, in my opinion. Where I'm from, France, not everything said is illegal, and conspiracies that threaten people are to be extinguished. I was also mad at myself being pulled down into the rabbit hole of Trump news. It was easy to not watch news on TV, not so easy to avoid it on Facebook. So one morning I quit cold turkey, followed Facebook guidelines to inactivating my account and specifically answered no to the question about being kept up on news from Facebook and other notifications. No, no, no. What is rather interesting about the aftermath is that Facebook keeps sending me updates on my Facebook friends every day, many times uh, via email, trying to get 
me back. I assume it's terribly annoying. If I was a lawyer, I would look into some sort of harassment suit here. Okay, thank you so much, Bear. Uh, I think that uh, your frustration really gets to something that came out during the Zuckerberg hearings earlier this year when one of the uh, Congress members, I can't remember who it was exactly, pointed out to the fact that if you don't have a profile on Facebook, you are still tracked on Facebook. And in order to opt out of that tracking, you then need to create a profile on Facebook. Inescapable, right? <laughs> it's it's just suffocating. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in Bear's message. One thing I have a slightly different view on, maybe because I'm American is the First Amendment. Um, he said the First Amendment rights are fine, but up to a point, in my opinion. That's understandable from a European perspective where, where the laws on free speech are different. But of course, the First Amendment isn't what is preventing social platforms from from moderating what people say on them. And the First Amendment in the United States is about is about government censorship of speech. And so it does not prevent, for instance, Facebook from from stamping out conspiracy theories if it wants to. I think what prevents that is is Facebook's incentives and its business model and the way its whole company is structured, which is not about going in and sort of manually regulating what people can say and what people can't say. They want to do everything with algorithms. And you're right about it's like easy to turn off the news uh, on the news. But when you're on Facebook, you can't like toggle off news. So if you don't want to see Trump and it just keeps popping up on your feed, that's frustrating, too. Right. And so, um, you know, I have some compassion for that as well. Although that might be possible, mm-hmm. actually, in, in, Is it? in the yeah, future. Yeah, maybe Will knows. I mean, it's not right now, but, but okay. you know, Facebook, um, at first it, it started uh, requiring political ads to go through, jump through special hoops. And then some media companies got caught up in that because Facebook was identifying uh, stories about politics as being political ads. And so then Facebook had to create a registry of news organizations. So in theory, I haven't, this has never crossed my mind before, but in theory, maybe it could use that registry to let people turn off the news and just see social stuff in their feeds in the future. I don't know if it would ever do that. Okay. Everything about the idea of a registry of news organizations just completely shakes me in an uncomfortable way. Um, I uh, I don't know. That's... Uh, yeah. Speaking of the First Amendment, right? Yeah. This is some blurring that um and I don't use the term slippery slope I want to instead say that like blurring of when we ask when we want accountability and we want control uh and uh and the way by which that control is achieved is uh through uh de-anonymizing uh, or you know forcing uh these sorts of lists to be made that I'm afraid could be misused so um something to track very closely but uh, perhaps anything is possible <laughs> on these sites and uh and we need to think about the way that it's done the last thing i want to say about yeah, bear please. about bear's message is the part about where he stopped using facebook and they keep sending him updates on his facebook friends many times a day I get these too. I it, it's just so thirsty on Facebook's part. It's like, did you see what what Joe said about Sarah? And it's just, I like, come on, knock it off, guys. <laughs> I haven't opened one of those emails in weeks. You'd think they would get the I idea. I don't get them. I think I turned it off. They must work. They must work. But or maybe but they man, maybe annoying. I maybe I throw shade and somehow they've picked up my vibe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
Okay, and we have another one from somebody who asked to be anonymous, but writes that the types of personal data and the amount being collected goes so far beyond what people think and is hidden behind quote-unquote terms and privacy agreements. It has changed the way I view the Cambridge Analytica scandal and technology in general. Most of all, it's made me angry that a multi-million, that's billion-dollar, economy thrives on us. I am the kind of out-there school of thought that individuals should be the ones who own and profit from their data. All of this said, I still have Facebook, Snapchat, Gmail, and worst of all, Google Maps on my phone. Without them, I cannot navigate my world. Thanks for that note. I think that uh, she has a really good point here, um, which is that this year people have completely, I think, maybe they already were thinking this, but this year has really been a a turning point in uh, the way we consider our relationships uh, with these companies that we are dependent on, right? That that we really, you know, need. I, I also uh, have structured my life around these technologies um, and would have to restructure it to uh, divorce myself from them. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. At the risk of belaboring it, I do think it's interesting that we kind of went from at least, wow, you know, Google Maps has become a huge part of my life. I depend on it. What a great service to now being like, well, I don't really want to support this company or be part of this surveillance ecosystem, but I depend on it as part of my life, and the, and our dependency on it has become a sort of a, a sort of tether as opposed to an endorsement of the product. We're going to wrap our listener mail segment uh, right there. But I want to thank everybody who took the time to send us a note and who takes the time to listen every week. It is amazing that uh, you all join us so regularly to discuss, you know, the most powerful companies in the world and how it affects our lives. And really grateful for that. We're going to move on next to our interview with Josephine Wolf, who has a new book out about data breaches and how the law does or does not deal with it. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. One note before our conversation with Josephine Wolf. We spoke with her on November 27th, which was right before news came out of a breach at Marriott that may have exposed the data of 500 million users and could have been the result of a Chinese intelligence gathering effort. Our guest today is Josephine Wolf. She's an assistant professor of public policy at Rochester Institute of Technology. She's also a faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and a fellow at the New America Cybersecurity Initiative. She's written for The New York Times, Slate, The Atlantic. Her latest book is You'll See This Message When It Is Too Late, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches. Josephine Wolf, welcome to If Then. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So we tend to hear a lot about a big data breach right after it happens or right after it's disclosed to the public, at least. It makes big headlines for a few days. We hear about the number of people who got hit, what exactly was stolen, maybe who did it, if we're lucky. Here's what that sounds like. The defendants targeted Yahoo accounts of Russian and U.S. government officials, including cybersecurity 
diplomatic and military personnel. They also targeted Russian journalists, numerous employees of other providers whose networks the conspirators sought to exploit, and employees of financial services and other commercial entities. And then the days and weeks go by and we sort of just forget all about it. But your book takes a deep look into what comes next. You talk about the aftermath of hacks, what happens when people stop paying attention and the details aren't pasted all over the news anymore. Can you tell us why that in particular interests you? So I think there are two related reasons I was really interested in the aftermath of these security breaches. And one is I was really interested in trying to get at this question of how much these incidents cost, what the actual dollar figures that we're able to put on them after some of the dust has settled and some of the cleanup work has been done. And related to that, I was curious who was responsible for these costs, who we actually sort of hold accountable and how in the aftermath of these breaches, how those costs get distributed. Right. So we hear these top line numbers and it sounds really bad at the time, but you're trying to actually attach some dollar figures to that and figure out who's responsible so that we could develop appropriate policies. What's wrong with the policies we have now? I think for the most part, we just don't have a lot of policies in this space, right? There's been fairly minimal regulation in the United States and in most other countries around what we expect of companies that store your data in terms of security practices and what kinds of penalties there should or could be if they fail to protect that data. And we've started to see a little bit more movement here, especially in Europe with the GDPR this year. But on the whole, there's been a fairly hands-off approach to that. So in the United States, for instance, most sort of enforcement comes either from class action lawsuits, which people bring after their data is stolen or breached, and those are complicated in a whole lot of ways, or from the Federal Trade Commission, which sometimes files complaints against organizations who suffer data breaches. And so there's a very sort of ad hoc approach to trying to penalize or reprimand the organizations who let data be stolen. And it kind of ties into this longer ongoing fight in the economics of information security community, which is, do we spend as a society too little or too much on data security? And there are people who argue we're spending way too little, and that's why there are all of these breaches, and that's why security is so terrible. And then there are people who argue, well, actually, companies are spending exactly the rational amount of money because these breaches don't actually cost them that much. So why would they spend any more money securing this data, given how few consequences there are? And I was trying to understand if you take sort of a longer view on these incidents than just a week or a month or two months, how, how do we actually see those costs shaking out? And what can we say about whether people are making rational investments in security and how we can perhaps try and think about getting them to ramp up those investments? And so in your view, is there something broken here? Yes, I think there's a really narrow understanding of whose responsibility information security is in this space. And one of the things I try to do in the book is sort of tease out in any given incident, and I talk about a few specific ones, starting with the TJX breach more than 10 years ago now, how many different players are sort of involved in thinking about security. And we tend to focus fairly narrowly on you know, TJ Maxx or Target 
or the particular company or organization that gets breached. But in fact, because of the way that the internet works, often there are a lot of stages to that incident. There are a lot of intermediate actors who the attackers are going through or using in some way and trying to understand sort of what it means to do more effective defense and security work, I think is a lot about trying to understand sort of what is the collective responsibility, what role does each of those intermediaries play in security and how can we put it less on one individual organization to secure data and instead tailor some of those responsibilities to the particular strengths of these different types of actors. So, you know, beyond the economic costs that this may, you know, cost companies or the, you know, whether they should be spending more on it or less on it or whether there should be more penalties that they should face that would inspire them to keep better security from the regulatory perspective. One question I always have when I see these big uh, security breach stories, which we see now, you know, every couple of months kind of on cue is that uh, I don't know how they really affect people. You know, like I, I assume I've been swept up in some kind of like horrendous security breach and, and that I've been a customer of one of these companies that have had their databases and my information tapped. But I don't know how that's affecting me now. I mean, I, I feel like we don't really understand the personal harms of this. Uh, the economic harms of the companies, fine. I'm, I'm, they're really rich. Make them spend more. Maybe they should spend less. I don't know. But how does this affect consumers? That's a really great question. And the book is actually sort of divided uh, between incidents that are really focused on financial harm and people trying to steal money from these companies or steal money using the stolen data versus incidents that are more focused on espionage or on public humiliation. And I think the kinds of incidents that have sort of the most complicated consequences and lawsuits are really the kind that you're talking about where the harm that the attackers are driving at is not, I want to steal your credit card and all of your money, but instead I want to sort of cause a lot of personal damage. And that can look like a lot of different things. Right. I talk about the Sony Pictures breach, where a lot of the damage that was caused, there was economic harm, of course, to Sony Pictures, but a lot of the sort of individual tragedies that come out of that story are people whose emails get read or whose personal files are being exposed. Um, or also another example of that would be the Ashley Madison breach, in which you have a lot of people's sort of attempted infidelities being exposed and a certain number of suicides that are in some ways linked to that particular breach. And oh my gosh, did you just say suicides linked to that breach? There are either one or two suicides that occur after the Ashley Madison breach um, of people whose information is revealed there. Ashley Madison, if, if this has faded in people's memory, is the site where people would go online to find people to commit adulterous affairs with. Um, so it was, you know, it was not really a financial loss when your information was exposed on that website, but it was a personal, a professional problem. There was sort of a lot of embarrassment associated with many of those stories. Um, and that, that really feeds exactly into the thing you just asked about, which is how do we sort of try and understand and address those kinds of harm? And I think the sort of short answer is that we don't have a legal system that's really set up for that. Because the ways that people, say, try to get satisfaction from Ashley Madison after that breach mostly center around class action lawsuits. And in order to have legal standing to sue somebody, you need to be able to show that they've caused you injury. And one of the things that the Ashley Madison 
victims come up against and that sort of a recurring theme of these data breach class action lawsuits is that you have to be able to show essentially either financial or physical harm in a court of law for, for a judge to recognize your injury, right? It's not enough. And the Ashley Madison plaintiffs try this to go in and say, look, this was a loss of privacy. This was, you know, a psychological harm. I've lost sleep. I've been divorced. My family life is ruined, right? There's no way really for the U.S. legal system to recognize that and to kind of grant you standing to sue on those grounds. And so all of those types of injury become incredibly difficult to measure and incredibly difficult to sort of factor in to understanding the consequences of these breaches. But what if you're a target customer? Like, I want to know about like more regular people that maybe aren't going online to cheat on their spouses or who don't have the privilege of working at Sony. Like if you just are a TJ Maxx customer or a target customer and your information got breached, what does that mean for you? Usually in those particular breaches, it would just mean the potential for financial fraud, because so far as we understand those breaches, they're being perpetrated by people who want to make money. Um, so that would be a kind of the kind of case where it was unlikely that there would be a lot of personal consequences. On the other hand, it can okay. mean, even if it's just a financially motivated breach, right, it might mean that you spend a lot of time on the phone trying to clear up fraudulent card charges or freeze your credit accounts or something like that. And that kind of time and energy and anxiety is, again, something that you cannot really be compensated for through legal mechanisms. So a lot of people, even involved in sort of more straightforward financial breaches, spend a lot of time and energy trying to deal with this, trying to straighten out when accounts are opened under their name or they can't get their tax refund because somebody's already filed for it using their information. And we've seen, again, class action lawsuits where people try to claim that sort of loss that, you know, I spent days and weeks and months trying to figure out who had filed my taxes or opened this account. And there's really not a lot of ways for us to factor that in to the costs of these data breaches. And you said sort of you were interested in, in the non-economic dynamics, which are really important. But part of this is also the fact that we can't quantify or translate those pieces into economic harm mean that they're not factored into the ways that organizations choose to invest in security because they just don't really count. One, one thing I, I've, I'm always curious about with these things is that since the harm is so hard to quantify, since like if you are a Target customer or you were a Yahoo customer and you got, you know, swept up in this, you know, massive data breach, people don't really know how that affects them or, or if it affected them or if they do know, they don't really like have to deal with it or it didn't really change their lives at all. So it's kind of like a non-news story that just seems shocking at first. And it seems like since the harms are so hard to kind of put your finger on, that that's kind of what's behind the lack of policy action or regulatory response when it comes to creating kind of a legal incentive for these companies to do better. Yeah, I think that's fair, that the inability to sort of pin down what the harms are, how serious they are, makes it harder for policymakers. I think there's also an element here where there are very few, if any, people in government who want to be the ones responsible for saying, look, here's what you're required to do for security. Here is sort of the baseline we expect from companies. And if you don't meet these standards or these requirements, then you're negligent. And if you're not willing to do that, then the ability to sort of set clear policy is pretty severely compromised. 
We're going to take a quick break and then more of our conversation with Josephine Wolf. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try, and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's talk about this for a second in the context of the recent Facebook data breach. There were some 29 million Facebook users who had their profile information stolen. I still don't think we know who did it or what they're going to do with that information. So what happens to those people? They're just kind of sitting around waiting for something bad to happen and may, may or may not ever know why it happened? That's pretty much exactly right. Um, you, you may see some attempts at filing class action lawsuits. That's going to be really hard to move forward with unless we actually see somebody using that information because, again, we need to prove that injury usually in order to move forward with lawsuits. And one of the things that I think is interesting as there are more data breaches and as we all sort of grow a little fatigued with them and have had our data stolen, you know, one, two, 10, 12 times, is that the ability to tie any of that injury back to an individual data breach gets harder. So if somebody opens up a bank account in your name or compromises one of your financial accounts using information that they got from your stolen Facebook account, for instance, then your ability to show in court that that was Facebook's fault because they failed to protect your information is going to be much harder if that information has been stolen from five, 10 other companies over the past few years. And unless you can prove that causal link, then again, you can't hold Facebook accountable. And so do you have any hope that there's going to be some sort of legislative you know, remedy that is that comes to play here? Do you, do you see any momentum for that? So I think the, the things that would make a big difference in this space, and I don't think they're imminent sort of under this Congress, but I think there's certainly been some movement in this direction at various moments over the past three or four years, are mostly tied to the question of bringing in intermediaries like the internet service providers, like the online payment processors, and putting a lot more responsibility on them to detect bad actors who block some of this malicious activity. Um, and that's often a very unpopular solution because we hold our intermediary liability protections very near and dear in the online space. But while they've been very important for a lot of reasons, I think those liability protections also mean that we have a huge number of very powerful actors, starting with the internet service providers, who have really sort of washed their hands 
of security protections for a lot of the internet because they don't have to do that, because they don't want to get involved in that space where they know people are just going to get irritated with them for blocking certain kinds of traffic or blocking certain connections with compromised machines. And I think that to really make progress, those are the really powerful actors. It's not going to be possible to see come from, you know, motivated individuals trying to use the legal system. I'm not even convinced it's going to be possible for, say, individual retailers and companies to do by locking down their networks better, though certainly there's room for improvement there as well. To switch gears for a second, you wrote recently in an op-ed about the Trump administration's, quote, aggressive cybersecurity policy and why that could be reckless. What did you mean by that? And, and what's the what's the concern there? I think for a long time in the United States, we've had a pretty cautious approach to using any kind of cyber weapons, to releasing malware for sort of instrumental purposes beyond espionage, to trying to compromise or shut down computers of adversaries. Um, And there are a lot of sort of plans made under the Obama administration around cutting power infrastructure to certain countries or other things that are never implemented, in part because President Obama and others in that administration were nervous about setting a precedent that might encourage other countries to do similar things. And I think one of the risks of the new cyber strategy is that if we decide to really go all in in using cyber power, the possibility that we sort of hasten other countries, many of whom have as sophisticated, if not more sophisticated, cyber arsenals than the United States, that they're going to decide, okay, it's time to really let loose here as some of them, like Russia and North Korea, already start to be doing or seem to start to be doing, I think there's a real risk that the United States is not going to be kind of the more tempered, more cautious entity in that space that it's been before. And I think that's concerning because I don't think that we have any reason to believe we have the best weapons or the most sophisticated malware there. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation about a topic that we keep hearing on the news and we just don't dig into in the right ways enough. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That does it for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Josephine Wolf. You can find her on Twitter at Josephine C. Wolf. That's Wolf with two Fs. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate it, not only because we like to be praised, but because it helps other people discover the show. Without those reviews, nobody would find it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez and Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.